Hello, everybody. I'm Monica Canovadia from BBMRI Eric, and I want to give you all a warm welcome to this new episode of our LC Dialogues on Sex and Gender in Biomedical Research. Today, we have a special guest, Amanda Montañez, uh, who is a graphics editor at Scientific American, who will be talking uh, today about the complexity of visualizing the complexity of sex determination. Um, before I hand over to, um, to Amanda, I want to remind you that this webinar is being recorded and will be made available online. And I want to say a few words about us. Uh, our institution, BBMRI ERIC, is an institution that aims at facilitating access to sample and data collections across Europe to advance biomedical research. To reach this goal, we rely on a network of national nodes and a team of uh, interdisciplinary experts from medicine, social, social sciences, IT, etc. Within BBMRI ERIC, our unit, the LC Services and Research Unit, so it provides support on ethical, legal, and societal issues. Our three key cornerstones are research, service, and training. When it comes to research, we conduct research on GDPR compliance, societal engagement, ethics of AI in different projects. We also provide services supporting the biobanking and life science uh, research infrastructure communities by facilitating compliance with regulatory requirements and best practices. And when it comes to training, we provide topical trainings such as this workshop uh, webinar today. Regarding the LC dialogues on sex and gender in biomedicine, um, the integration of sex and gender sensitive perspectives in research is fundamental for the European Commission and BBMRI ERIC is committed to gender equality as it benefits research and innovation by improving the quality um, and also the relevance of the research and innovation process. Our approach to gender equality is not limited to sex and gender binaries. And our goal is to advance gender identity, equality, diversity, and inclusion on a very diverse basis. And um, we have organized a few webinars um, on this, on our LC um, dialogues on sex and gender in biomedical research. The first one was the importance of gender in biomedical research with Londa Schibinga and Sabine Oftel-Prigione. And the second one, the um, European Union support to gender equality in research and innovation with gene lenders from the European Commission. Today, we have with us Amanda Montañez that will be talking about the, this um, complexity of sex beyond the binary. And after her presentation, we will have a Q&A session. Please use the chat box to write your questions and then I will get to them and read them on your behalf. 
without any further ado i'm going to hand over to um, amanda so first you i just want to thank monica for uh inviting me to participate in this webinar i think this series is a, a really great idea and i'm uh, happy to be a part of it um so just to introduce myself and uh give a little bit of my background um i'm a graphics editor at scientific and uh, scientific american magazine uh however my uh, educational background is not actually in journalism. Um, I did my graduate study in biomedical communications, which is uh, kind of roughly equivalent to medical illustration, uh, if you know what that is, um, but just a bit broader in scope. Um, and so my role at Scientific American was uh, my first full-time job after grad school, so I've been there about seven years now. Um, and for those who are unfamiliar, uh, Scientific American Magazine uh, is a, a science magazine aimed at a general audience. Uh, it's aimed at uh, a, yeah, a general audience. Uh, it started in 1845, which makes it um, the oldest continuously published magazine in the United States. Um, we publish articles both online and in print. Um, and the graphics team uh, consists of my colleague, John Christensen, and myself. Um, we produce information graphics, uh, which include things like uh, charts, um, maps, explanatory diagrams. I produce uh, work primarily for news articles that run on the website, um, although I also do some work for the print magazine. Um, and so I'll just show a few recent examples of my work. So a lot of the graphics that I produce myself are charts like this one, um, and they are created as part of a news story. So um, in this case, the story was about uh, the rather precipitous drop in life expectancy in the US since the start of the pandemic. Um, and then there are some graphics that I hire out to freelance artists. Um, so this, for example, is part of a series of graphics um, by Science Illustrator Lucy Redding Akanda for an article on something called uh, quantum pseudotelepathy. And then this was um, part of a service piece about how medication abortion works. And uh, medical illustrator Mesa Schumacher produced this graphic. Um, and in this case, the graphic was really the central component of the story. So there was um, a bit of text to just introduce it, but the, the art really did most of the work as far as explaining the process. Um, yeah, so as you can see, we, we cover a really wide range of topics at Scientific American, and graphics often come into play either as a central or a supporting piece of the stories that we tell. Uh, but there's one graphic that has gotten probably the most attention of anything that I've worked on um, in terms of both the content and the quality of the visualization. Um, and it's the reason that I was asked to give this talk. And it looks like this. Um, so this was designed for print. Um, it stretches across two pages in the magazine. Uh, there's an online version, but it essentially looks the same. Uh, so for this presentation, I'm just going to focus on the print version. Um, this is a feature graphic, meaning that it wasn't created as a supporting piece of art within a larger story. Uh, but rather that the graphic itself essentially is the story. Um, so you can see there's a little bit of introductory text in the upper left, uh, but beyond that, the graphic really stands alone. 
Um, and the main story that it tells is that of biological sex as a spectrum with the typical male and the typical female on either side. Um, and in the middle are a series of intersex conditions, also known as differences of sex development or DSDs, uh, which might put an individual uh, kind of somewhere in the middle, biologically speaking. But just to back up a little bit, um, this graphic was created for a special issue that we put out back in 2017 on the science of sex and gender. Um, so this issue included articles on things like um, sex differences in the brain, how to improve uh, women's health care, and gender inequality in academia. Um, and on the graphics team, when we thought about how we could contribute to this issue, um, our original idea was to include two feature graphics, each taking up a two-page spread, um, and they would focus on what data can tell us about sex and gender in our world today. So for one graphic, I thought it would be useful to look at the current state of inequality based on sex or gender around the world. Um, and then I also wanted to dive into some of the data around people who fall outside of the binary categories of sex and gender. So to look into both of these ideas, um, I enlisted the help of a researcher named Amanda Hobbs. And she spent a while just searching around uh, for data sets that we could use to tell these stories. So for the graphic on gender inequality, she came back with a pretty straightforward um, series of data sets, basically spreadsheets full of numbers that we could use to generate charts to tell the story. So it ended up looking like this. Um, and we looked at things like gender gaps in government, education, access to contraception, and domestic violence. Um, and this was a lot of work to put together, uh, but in general, the data wasn't too hard to find. Um, we relied on sources like the UN, WHO, and the World Bank. But when it came to researching people who fall outside of the gender binary, data was much harder to come by. Um, and in hindsight, I think there's kind of a line to be drawn between the abundance of data on gender gaps, which tend to rely on rigid categories of male and female, and the dearth of data on those who defy those rigid categories. And this idea comes up a lot in my work as a graphics editor because it's part of my job to visualize these kinds of um, scientific data sets that divide people into various categories. And when it comes to gender, I often end up qualifying things with a little footnote like this, um, which just in case it's too small to read, um, the note says, Data are available for male and female genders only, non-binary uh, categories were not included. So it's just a little, you know, kind of disclaimer, acknowledgement that um, some people may have been either misgendered or just left out of the data, um, which even if it's a small percentage, you know, makes the data set a little bit weaker. So rather than try to show what little, you know, rather unreliable data uh, we could find on the topic of non-binary sex or gender, we decided to instead use the infographic form to shed light on what it means to fall outside of the binary and um, explore some of the many routes that sex development can take. And this approach appealed to me not only as an information designer, but also as someone who has studied developmental biology. Um, as part of my graduate study in medical illustration, um, I was in anatomy class along with the first year medical students and I remember the embryology unit being particularly challenging because it's just such a complicated process with so many moving pieces. Um, and as part of that unit, I did learn about DSDs, um, 
but the visualiz visualizations that I encountered on this topic largely fell into two, two categories. Um, they were either illustrations of genitals uh, kind of viewed close up, or they were these uh, sort of old timey black and white photographs of patients, um, often out adolescents with DSDs. Um, and they were typically photographed from the front, uh, kind of standing there naked, always with their um, eyes or their whole face faces covered. And both types of images um, struck me just on a personal level as like a little bit dehumanizing, but also from a scientific perspective, just really reductive because they're literally just snapshots. Um, they represent one aspect of sex development for one moment of a person's life. Um, so I saw an opportunity to bring a bit more nuance to this topic and to try to explore some of the science in a way that was approachable um, without shying away from the complexity inherent in it. Um, and also just, I guess, offer a different sort of visual that could tell the story in a way that didn't feel exploitative or problematic in the same way as uh, some of those images I had encountered as a student. So um, I just wanna give you a little window into the process of how this graphic developed. Um, as with just about any graphic I create, um, I started with a written outline and I tried to lay out the structure of what we wanted to cover. So first, terminology. I wanted to clarify upfront what we're talking about when we use the term sex, gender, and sexuality, um, and reinforce that they all mean different things, although they can be interrelated. Uh, next, I thought about what factors can play into how a person identifies in terms of their sex or their gender, uh, things like external genitalia, hormones, um, how they see themselves. And finally, I thought about how these factors can emerge or change over an individual lifespan. So for example, you know, you're born with certain external genitalia, uh, certain hormones typically come into play around puberty. Um, you might transition to a different gender as an adult, which may involve altering your biology. Um, so in a sense, there's very little about sex and gender that's necessarily fixed or constant. So once I had this outline, um, again, with the help of researcher Amanda Hobbs, I dove into the research around intersex phenotypes and started to think about um, which ones to highlight and kind of what characterizes each one. So figures like this were uh, useful for identifying uh, which genes are involved in conditions like persistent malaria duct syndrome or congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And here are two more figures that get into uh, kind of the cascade of events involved in sex development and the timelines along which they occur. Um, and so basically I combined different pieces of a lot of these types of references into a diagram that looked like this. And when I was making this, I wasn't necessarily trying to plan out what the graphic would look like. I was really just trying to synthesize the information and kind of wrap my head around how it all fit together. Um, and I want to note that I chose a subset of DSDs uh, somewhat ar arbitrarily just to offer uh, sort of a cross-section of the different pathways that development can take. Um, to visualize every known DSD would have been uh, beyond the scope of the project and certainly would have taken up more than the two allotted pages. So in the main box, um, I organized everything around two axes. So um, the horizontal axis is a spectrum going from typical female to typical male. 
and uh, the vertical axis is time. So from, from conception to birth, puberty, and adulthood. And then in the gray stripe uh, near the top, I put the names uh, by which these different constellations of biological traits are identified, um, things like Turner syndrome, Klinefelter syndrome, et cetera. Um, I used color coding to show the different types of sex determining factors. So uh, chromosomes are shown in pink, um, genes are in green, sex organs are in orange, uh, hormones are in purple, and secondary sex characteristics, uh, these are things like breasts or facial hair, are in blue. And then at the bottom, I just defined the major gender categories, um, so cisgender or transgender woman, cisgender or transgender man, and non-binary person. And then uh, where these dotted lines are, I just wanted to acknowledge the connections between sex and gender and how they can influence each other. Um, so for example, some intersex people might come to identify with a different gender than they were assigned at birth, in part because of the way that their DSD manifests. Um, and likewise, somebody who is not cisgender might do hormone treatment or surgical procedures to better align their biology with their identity. Um, now, before I went any further, I consulted with an expert. Uh, so Dr. Amy Wisniewski is a professor of urology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center and focuses on differences of sex development. And what struck me about her expertise was that um, she studies not just intersex phenotypes, but also the psychological outcomes of people who are born with DSDs. In her uh, clinical practice, she works directly with intersex patients and their families to help make decisions about their care. So it seemed like she would bring a certain level of sensitivity and respect for the actual humans involved in this area of study. Um, so Dr. Wisniewski very kindly looked over the information I had put together and provided feedback. And from there, I was able to move forward with confidence in the scientific accuracy of the content of the graphic. So next it was time to design this thing. Um, I handed off my visual outline to a data visualization firm called Pitch Interactive. This team does really great work. Um, and one of the reasons that I chose them was their track record of visualizing really complex data sets beautifully and effectively. They also appealed to me for this project um, because they are a team including women and men. Um, so I liked that they could bring more than one gender perspective to the project. So looking at the original uh, visual outline versus the final design, um, obviously one is a lot prettier, but uh, in many ways the design didn't really change. They kept the organizational, organizational framework intact, uh, which I think in the end was a good decision because it captures the key ideas that I wanted to get across um, about sex development, namely that it's incredibly complex and variable and not binary or fixed. So looking a little bit closer at the main part of the final version, um, along the left-hand side, again, we have the timeline and the color coding system laid out from top to bottom. So um, there are colors assigned to the different factors that determine sex. Uh, so chromosomes, genes, hormones, internal and external sex organs, um, secondary sex characteristics. And then um, the horizontal axis is the sex spectrum. So 
the pathway of the typical uh, biological female is on the left and the typical biological male is on the far right. And each is delineated with a dotted white line. And here we also used um, color to bring focus to the horizontal axis and to just reinforce the idea of a spectrum. Um, and as an interesting side note, uh, one of the earlier sketches in the design process used kind of a more familiar rainbow color scheme, uh, like starting with red and ending in purple. And it looked nice, um, but it was so evocative of gay pride. And I wanted to be really careful about um, not conflating any of this with sexuality because that's really a separate issue. So we came up with this uh, green to purple scheme that I think uh, works well because it's not quite a rainbow, but it's still nice and bright and just visually appealing. So now I want to take you through um, one of the DSD examples that make up the middle section of the graphic, just to give you a sense of how a reader might move through the content. Um, so 5-alpha reductase deficiency is an interesting example, and I chose to highlight it in the graphic with this uh, text bubble at the top because it ties um, gender identity in with intersex biology. Um, and I'll explain how in just a minute. Um, but if you move down from the text bubble and follow the white arrows starting at the top, you can see that uh, the chromosomes associated with this condition are 46XY, which is the same as a typical biological male. But then there's a mutation on the gene known as SRD5A2, uh, which leads to this phenotype, again, known as 5-alpha um, reductase deficiency. Now, in terms of hormones, um, this causes low dihydrotestosterone before birth. Um, and you can see there are two white arrows branching off, um, and that's because this particular DSD can follow different pathways in different people. So one arrow uh, kind of snakes way off to the left to a scenario where a person is born with female external genitalia and the internal anatomy of a typical male. And then in the other scenario, um, they might have either predominantly male or ambiguous external genitalia and male internal structures. And then as we move down uh, the timeline to puberty, the white arrows come back together meaning that this part of sex development is consistent across people with 5-alpha reductase deficiency. Um, so their bodies produce male hormones and they develop the secondary sex characteristics of a typical male. So this is where gender, gender identity uh, kind of ties in because for those people who have this condition and are born with either female or ambiguous external anatomy, they might be assigned female at birth but then as they enter puberty and experience this surge of male hormones, they might come to identify as male. So I'm not gonna go through all of the content of the graphic just because um, there's a lot in there and honestly, you can look at it on your own. Um, but I do wanna talk a little bit about how it was received by different communities because um, the response was and continues to be quite varied, and I think uh, it says a lot about the power of graphics, um, especially when we use graphics to communicate about such a potentially sensitive topic. So it was quite well received by the design and data visualization communities. Um, it was shortlisted for the Information is Beautiful Awards, which is a, a big juried uh, data visualization competition every year. Um, it was also featured in this book called uh, Data Feminism by Catherine D'Ignacio and Lauren F. Klein, um, which I highly recommend, by the way. Um, 
And I would say the academic community in general uh, really seem to appreciate it as a resource for teaching this topic in a visual way. Um, I sometimes get requests for the graphic to be made into a poster to hang up in a classroom, which I haven't done yet, but maybe someday. However, um, the graphic did get some criticism from some intersex advocates who I think were particularly sensitive to the idea of medical interventions, including surgery, as part of the pathways for some of these conditions. And for good reason, because you know the medical establishment has historically been pretty abusive to the intersex community. Um, as I understand it, there are still plenty of doctors who perform medically unnecessary procedures on young kids before they can really consent, um, just to make their bodies look more typically male or female, often at the expense of the reproductive and sexual function that will become important to them later in life. Additionally, the pathologizing language uh, used around this topic can be harmful to intersex people because of the way that it contributes to social stigma. So for example, the term differences of sex development rather than disorders of sex development is now widely used, um, although it's certainly not universal. Um, some intersex advocates would object to the use of the term condition to describe a difference of sex development. Um, and while I understand the reasoning behind this position, I, I also think it's important to consider that, you know, some of these phenotypes can be life-threatening without medical intervention. Um, so it is really complicated. But the majority of the criticism has been from those who fundamentally disagree with the idea of sex as a spectrum. And this group is really kind of fascinating to me because they typically don't dispute any of the science in the graphic. They don't deny that intersex people exist. But their argument is basically, um, you know, DSDs are rare disorders. There are cases where something has gone, quote unquote, wrong in development, and they only represent a small fraction of the population. So in other words, as far as I can tell, I think this group would say that, you know, sex is binary and intersex people just don't count. And I think that argument is really indicative of the way that intersex people have been treated in medicine. Um, and frankly, I just don't see any logic to it. Um, you know, first of all, if we apply a relatively broad definition of the word intersex, research indicates that it might apply to about 1% of the population. So not actually that rare. Um, and then, you know, just to state the obvious, uh, just because most people fall on one end of the spectrum or the other, doesn't mean the spectrum doesn't exist. So um, in closing, I just wanted to um, share this short documentary that my colleagues in the Scientific American Multimedia Department put together recently. Um, this is part of a series they're doing called A Question of Sex. Um, and I think it complements the graphic that I've been discussing here really well because um, it centers the experience of intersex people within the medical establishment um, and also addresses the overlapping concerns of biology and identity. It's so wild that these letters are like 60 years old. My mom died in 2017. A few years before she died, she gave me a packet of letters that my uncle gave to her. Um, notes written from the doctor who had performed surgery on them when they were younger. 
We have under our care at Baby's Hospital an infant of six weeks with ambiguous external genitalia. So that's one of my cousins. Uh, we are very interested in knowing something about their anomalies and the degree of phallic development over the years, these facts being pertinent to the sex rearing of our little patient. It really kind of brings home that these are little people. We're doing these really invasive interventions on little people. I was a little person, and I think we have to make it right. This is me as a kid. <laughs> this one is me and my mom. I really like this picture because it's just such a tender photo. I'm intact. I'm an intact baby. Sean Seiferwall is a public health researcher and intersex activist who works to end medically unnecessary surgeries on intersex youth. Intersex is an umbrella term for variations that may appear in a person's chromosomes, genitals, or internal organs. There are more than 30 medical terms for different combinations of sex traits that fall outside the typical male and female paths of development. Though the intersex rights movement has been around since the 1990s, its momentum has accelerated in just the past few years as more and more people in medicine rethink their assumptions about the sex binary. So this is definitely before surgery. And this one is after surgery. I went from being masculine to being super feminine. And that's, I think that's what caused so much distress in me as a young person, to see my body change in ways that I didn't want. I was castrated when I was 13 years old. I'm 42 now. I think sometimes about what my life would have been like if my body was left alone. And I think all of us really suffer in silence. There are life-threatening conditions in which genital surgery is required for infants and children. But quote-unquote normalizing their genital appearance to match a sex assigned in early age isn't medically necessary and is still largely up to doctors and parents. After Wall's testes were removed in 1992, he and his mom attended a consultation with the same doctor for another genital surgery. He described the procedure, and I never, it was seared into my 14-year-old brain. It was seared forever. And he said, I'm going to shave down your clitoris, and I'm going to create a cavity inside of you. And literally, I remember my stomach turned. And I felt so sick. And my mom just happened to look over at me and she was like, do you want to go through with this? And I was like, no. And that was the one thing that spared me from genital surgery. He didn't bring up anything with regard to loss of sensation or any number of things that happens. It has been documented in the literature that these metrics of success around surgery are based on heterosexual relationships. There are so many assumptions made that I would want a vagina, that I would want to be in a heterosexual relationship, that I would even identify as a woman. I think science is really based on this belief system that there are just only two sexes and that intersex does happen in nature but it can't happen in humans. And so I think it's treated something as other 
when in actuality, intersex is so much a part of who we are um, as human beings. So what I like to say about sex is that it's always complex. It's not just complex in the context of intersex, but this can sometimes be a hard pill for people to swallow. Our bodies are far more variable than our categories. Part of what's happened is as people um, become slotted into this binary framework. While gendered social structures are ancient, a binary framework of biological sex didn't actually exist in Western culture until the late 18th century. Before, science recognized only one sex, the male, and considered the female body an inferior version of it. The shift that historians call the two-sex model served mainly to reinforce gender and racial divisions by tying social status to the body. If you think back to the 19th century and the role of men and women and who's allowed in the public sphere, who's allowed to compete in sport, who's allowed to be um, have careers and otherwise and pursue things, um, a lot of that gets pinned to biology, right? Men's innate capacities versus women's innate capacities and different things that they're capable of doing. And that carries forward into science where science becomes preoccupied with looking for difference. But of course, there were countless people who didn't neatly fit into this binary. In the 1950s, a group of specialists at Johns Hopkins University came together to standardize the medical treatment of infants with so-called ambiguous genitalia. That's when a psychologist named John Money argued that a person's gender identity forms around the time that language develops. To avoid confusion over gender identity, he said, sex should be established in early age and one's body should match. Okay. What we learned at medical school about sex variations was that they were sort of a joke of nature, where people who had one kind of chromosomes would have bodies that didn't match that. My daughters were diagnosed with a condition called complete androgen insensitivity when they were four and six years old. And that was at a time, 1990, when intersex was considered to be pretty shameful and not something that you wanted to talk about a lot. It was, it was generally recommended that you keep it a secret, even from your children themselves. But this was also the same time that people who were operated on as infants began to feel the effects as adults. Here we are at the first ever international world intersex meeting. I'd never found anyone who, um, you know, had a body like mine. And the only time I had someone in the medical establishment refer to it, it was in a shaming, you know, patronizing manner. They removed your clitoris? Well, they reduced it in size to more closely approximate a normal female appearance. Does it approximate a normal female sensation? No. And I want anyone watching this, be they... Um, you know, historians or doctors or intersex people, wh whomever, um, I, I want you to know that we are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, we are 10 people gathered together in Northern California, but it's just, it's just the beginning. And I can just feel how this is going to grow and, uh, and, and we're going to change um, the way that we're, the way that we're treated. It really changed my life when I found a support group when my older daughter was 14. I was able to talk to them and tell them the truth. I think we know through science that there is a spectrum of variation for just about everything, including sex traits. And people with intersex bodies show us that. 
because their bodies exist on a spectrum of difference. Um, I think the issue is that people want to think about gender as a binary. I know people who have different kinds of bodies who are living very happy and healthy lives. And I've also known a lot of people who've had surgery to change things like different looking genitals who are very unhappy about that. In 2020, Arlene and one of her daughters co-authored the first ever national study on the physical and mental health of intersex adults. More than half of 198 participants had been diagnosed with a depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder. Almost a third reported they'd previously attempted suicide. These findings don't claim to represent the entire intersex population, but they do reflect the need for more community-based research, specifically on mental health outcomes. You have a lot of research that focuses on cosmetic outcomes of surgery. They'll report that they're able to put something in the vagina that they correct, that they create. Um, and being able to put something in there of a certain size, they say the surgery was a success, but then no information about when that person goes on to want to be a sexual person, how that's working out for them. The care of transgender children is what's called affirmative care. And you affirm them throughout childhood and into adolescence um, in working through what their gender is and what they want their bodies to look like. The care of intersex children should be affirmative. It should be taught that their bodies are healthy and perfect. They should be taught that however they feel about their gender is healthy and fine. They should be taught that they have the right to self-determination to decide what they want their bodies to look like, what they feel their gender should be, how they want to um, express themselves sexually when they grow up but that's not happening. People are trying to deny trans people health care, but yet carry out these harmful surgeries on intersex people. Because I was assigned female at birth, I was put on this trajectory without my thorough informed consent. I think we teach a very erroneous view of biology as being something static and fixed. So we talk about, you know, a trait and a trait is seen as something you are born with or you develop at age three, and then you have it. Not as something that that develops, that changes, that depends on the environment. A mother will talk to her newborn and she'll say, hey, little man. Um, and there's a lot in that phrase. And that gets repeated how many times a day? Little boy, little man, a guy, little fella. It's not very often the parent says little person. That child is already learning that it has a gender. This is happening through the development of their brain and nervous system. In other words, typically male and female behaviors are often held up as fixed sex differences, rather than differences that develop because of the different ways in which boys and girls are treated in the world. You know, I think for people asking the question, is your child a boy or a girl? I would really challenge them to just take a moment and ask why. Why is it so important? Are you just happy to have a baby? Are you just happy to start a family? I think those are kind of quality of life questions that often get overlooked and missed in this conversation. In July 2020, after years of activism by Wall and others, the Chicago Children's Hospital became the first in the country to say it would stop performing medically unnecessary surgeries on intersex infants and children. 
Hospitals in other cities have since followed suit. In 2021, New York City passed a bill to educate doctors, parents, and guardians of intersex children on the potential harms of these surgeries. Al, can you see my face? It seems like Intersex Awareness Day is getting a lot busier because I feel like, you know, before, you know, Intersex Awareness Day was like a little peep and it's like, oh, intersex. But I feel like now people are really starting to, I'm just getting more requests to speak and people are like, what can I do? What can I do? So I'm really excited about the opportunities that lay ahead for us. It was so important to have those years of activism. This is one of the you know pressing human rights violations of our time. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like if the principles of medicine are do no harm, if one person stands up and says that what happened to them was unjust and they have experienced harm, I think that should be enough to actually do some course correction. And so that's why this work is so important to me because what happened to me should not happen to anyone. So um, yeah, I, I find that video really moving. Um, if you liked it, I would invite you to check out the other videos in the series. Um, again, it's called A Question of Sex. You can find them on the Scientific American website. Um, yeah, and with that, I'll uh, stop sharing my screen and, and take questions if there are any. Thank <laughs> you.